House lawmakers unveil a new plan to let parents use public funds to pay for private schools. Public funds are supposed to be used for a public purpose, which is educating children. The plan for education savings accounts now comes with a big boost for public funding. Why it's getting a skeptical response from opponents at the Capitol. An influential Texas congressman raises concern about the expanding war in the Middle East. I've been asked to start looking at an authorized use of military force. Why he says there could be a need for American troops on the ground. It's historic opportunity to make an investment in nature and in the great outdoors and to preserve wild Texas. The future of Texas parks in your hands. The push for more than a billion dollars for new places to get away from the city. Produced from the Capitol in Austin and airing statewide, this is the award-winning State of Texas. Hello and thank you for joining us. I'm Monica Madden in for Josh Hinkle. As we enter week three of this third special session, House Republicans finally laid out their plan to create an education savings account. Those would allow parents to use taxpayer dollars for private school tuition. But writing the bill was only part of the challenge. ESAs have faced significant opposition from nearly all Democrats and a sizable group of rural Republicans. Now it's being tied to an increase in public school funding, which they do want to see pass this special session. We have a school funding emergency in this state. House Democrats announcing a sweeping school finance package Thursday. It would increase the basic allotment for public schools and raise teacher pay by $15,000, amongst other funding boosts. While House Republicans work on their school finance bill, Democrats have been clear. They're standing united against vouchers. They will not vote yes to an education savings account bill, also referred to as school vouchers. Instead of passing a voucher scam, why don't we just fully fund our neighborhood schools so that everyone can thrive? And Democrats aren't the only ones opposed, with at least 24 Republicans who have been against ESAs in the past. I don't see the appetite in House District 18 in rural Texas for a voucher. It'll never be rained back in. With a rural district, Representative Ernest Bales is steadfast in his belief. We have to do what is best for the kids that need our love the most, and that is to have a very well-funded, very productive, very functional public education system. Key Republican negotiators are hopeful adding public school funding to the ESA bill will get everyone on board. It will be relatively broad and include a significant amount of money for public schools. But they'll need to break through with the group that is against any form of so-called school choice, no matter what it's tied to. We can walk and chew gum at the same time. At the end of the day, public funds are supposed to be used for a public purpose which is educating children. If we truly cared about what's best for the state of Texas, we would allow vouchers to stand alone rather than using those to hold captive. We reached out to the governor's office for comment on the compromise legislation. A spokesman for him told us that Governor Abbott said he's not going to expand the session call until the House reaches a deal on education savings account. Now we want to go a little bit deeper on this topic. Joining us now is Sergio Martinez Beltran from NPR's The Texas Newsroom and Edward McKinley from the Houston Chronicle and San Antonio Express News. Thanks for joining us, you guys. Thanks for having us. Thank of you. Of course. So, Sergio, I want to start with you because you've been talking a lot with these rural Republicans who have been on the fence about this issue um, and have resisted really any form of the education savings account program. Do you think that this version will appeal to them because it includes the thing that they do want, which is a boost to public school funding? It certainly is an attempt to try to convince some of these rural Republicans to vote for the voucher bill. I don't know how successful that will be, right? Rural Republicans have many other concerns besides 
funding for public schools. In many of these areas, it's school districts, the biggest employer. So they're worried that any effort to divert public funds to private schools will have a negative impact on that big employer. And you know, they also don't know how this will benefit their voters. In many of these rural areas, there's no private schools, so a voucher won't be useful there. Do you think this alliance of Democrats and Republicans who are against any form of a voucher-like program is going to hold the line? Because we have started to see some of those Democrats now say, oh, well, maybe I would be open to, you know, accepting this as a package in order for us to get some leverage on what we want. Most House Democrats don't want it. If you ask the caucus, and we've been in those press conferences, they'll say no deals on school vouchers, and the majority are still you know, that's still their stance. I do wonder, right, whether uh, Governor Abbott's political threats towards Republicans who oppose school vouchers, if that's gonna have an effect on them. But right now we're seeing that rural Republicans in particular are even coming out stronger and saying that they're not gonna vote for it. Yeah, I think there's an interesting dynamic where the governor's office is saying, we're not gonna cut a deal on expanding the call until the House has a deal on vouchers. But the House has no incentive to come out in support of a voucher deal unless they know for sure they're going to get the um, education funding. So it's a bit of a chicken or the egg situation at the moment. We have been hearing threats from Governor Abbott. He said that he will, you know, back the primary challengers to these Republicans if they don't come on board and support the education savings account. Any sign that that is having an effect so far? No, I mean, I think all of these people have been in office often for several terms. I mean, they're from rural areas. They have close relationships with their school districts. They know what it took to get elected in those communities. So I think, I mean, if you're gonna be a politician, you have to be pretty self-confident. So I think a lot of them feel very confident in how they arrived at their view on vouchers, and they're not gonna change just because of threats. Yes, I mean, I talked to Senator Robert Nichols of Jacksonville, who has opposed school vouchers historically, and I asked him if he was afraid of, of a potential primary opponent, and he said last time he beat his opponent by 50%, and if the new primary opponent will run on school vouchers, he'll beat them again by 50%. So he feels very com comfortable and confident, right, that he will still win. Uh, especially if they're just focusing on school vouchers. Now let's talk about the proposal itself. Ed, you've done a ton of research on how these programs are working in other states. What did you learn? Well, the main thing I learned is that there is not an easy answer, which feels like it probably should be obvious because if there were, we wouldn't be spending as much time talking about it as we are. Um, the big thing is that the most comparable states are Arizona and Florida. They've both had school choice voucher programs for a long time but more recently have expanded them to be universally eligible. And one of the big things that we've seen is that in the first few years of the eligibility, a lot of the people who are taking advantage of these programs are existing private school kids. So that's potentially problematic because a lot of the rhetoric for these bills is, well, we need to give kids in struggling public schools a chance to escape. We need to allow parents to pull their kids out of these public schools that as Governor Abbott would say, they don't align with the values of the parents because they're trying to promote this woke ideology. Um, but instead, as we're seeing in other states, at least at first, a lot of them are going to people already in private schools. But when you ask people like Senator Brandon Creighton, who authored the Senate bill, he says, well, maybe those people already left public schools years ago for some of the same reasons, and they shouldn't be punished. So that's one interesting thing that stuck out. All right, thank you all so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks. Lawmakers have a lot more money than expected to pay for high-profile priorities. That's the most biggest impact that you can make, is making sure it goes to the people who are what? 
educating our children, responsible for transporting them safely to and from their homes and up to the schools and back. And so I think that is the most important piece that we can do, at least as a state. How a newly discovered budget surplus could affect the approach at the Capitol to school funding and education savings accounts. Texas makes a big move to boost Israel's wartime economy. We'll look at what's behind a multi-million dollar investment to help the American ally. The Texas economy is outperforming expectations. Earlier this month, controller Glenn Hagar announced that the state will have more than $18 billion in unspent money at the end of this budget cycle. That means lawmakers will have more funds available for their priorities during this special session. Our Ryan Chandler spoke with the state's top accountant about the surplus and how it could affect the debate over school funding and education savings accounts. There's going to be a huge price tag for this special session, both for border security, $5 billion for public education, and, and uh, half a billion for, for education savings accounts at least, right? What do you think is the most prudent way that lawmakers should be spending this new surplus? Well, I think as we go through this session, you know, they'll wind down exactly the differences that they may have in the House and the Senate and exactly land on something. But the fact is trying to make sure that you put money into the pocketbooks of those people who are educating our children and those people who are driving the buses that are the cafeteria workers. All of these people are extremely important to make sure that we have a qualified workforce into the future. So I think any time that you can put money into those people's pockets, because let's just face it, you know, we all know that right now, while inflation has been slowing down. Last year, it was at 40-year record high. And so the point being is things cost more. And people that are trying to make month to month to be able to feed their families, that's the most biggest impact that you can make is making sure it goes to the people who are what? Educating our children, responsible for transporting them safely to and from their homes and up to the schools and back. And so I think that is the most important piece that we can do, at least as a state, is make sure it goes directly into those pockets and we keep the high quality educators in our classrooms. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I didn't hear anything about education savings accounts there, though. Do you think that that $500 million is, is a prudent use of taxpayer resources that the governor well, is advocating for? When I was in the legislature, I voted for education savings accounts. You know, the fact is, first and foremost, we have 6 million children that are 18 years and younger in the education system, whether that's in our public schools, private schools, charter schools, homeschool, 5.4 million of those are in the public education system. So regardless of what passes in education savings account, guess where the bulk of the kids are going to be educated? in the public education system. And so my point being is, I have always been a supporter of both of those. Uh, you actually can coexist the, the support of both of those. And in fact, I when I was a policymaker, I voted for education savings accounts. My office will be administering the education savings accounts if the legislature passes them, which I think they will. And so we are working very closely with the legislature this session to make sure to give us the tools that we need as a state agency in the controller's office to be successful, to stand that program up and making it meaningful for the kids that are trying to get a quality education here in yeah. the state of Texas. Ryan also spoke with controller Hagar about a move that's sending Texas taxpayer funds to support Israel. We'll have a closer look at that plan just ahead. Plus, a Texas congressman raises concerns about the conflict. I hope I, I never have to pass it out of my committee but we have to be prepared for all uh, contingencies. Why he says there could be a need for American troops in the Middle East. 
We know, though, that we can't take our parks for granted. And later, the future of Texas parks in your hands. The push for more than a billion dollars for new places to get away from the city. As Israel strikes back after the deadly attack by Hamas, the state of Texas is showing unequivocal support for the American ally. Ryan Chandler is joining us now with a closer look at the help that the Lone Star State is providing to Israel. Well, Monica, that's right. State leaders have been providing tangible assistance to the state of Israel, a close U.S. ally, including some financial support to help them free up some cash for the conflict. As Texans from and for Israel rallied outside the capital, lawmakers inside are using Texas's outsized global power to help out overseas. House Resolution Number 10 in support of the state of Israel. Late last week, Texas bought $20 million in bonds from the Israeli government, helping them free up cash for the conflict. Texas taxpayers now hold $100 million of Israeli bonds. I think it's the least that we as taxpayers can do. State controller Glenn Hager says it's a win-win. It's a bond, it's a rate return, but it's one way we can provide immediate dollars infusion to the Israeli government. Bonds, boycotts, and bans all tightening the world's restrictions on Hamas resources. The governor prohibiting state agencies from purchasing goods from any country or organization with ties to Hamas, expanding on the long-standing ban on doing business with companies who boycott Israel. We're going to be on extra cautious watch to make sure that we don't do business with anybody that we shouldn't be doing already. And back in Washington, President Biden is asking Congress for billions of dollars in military assistance for Israel. One key player in that process is Texas Congressman Michael McCall. He's a Republican who chairs the House Foreign Affairs Committee. And this week I asked him about the concerns that this conflict could escalate and what that could mean for American troops. How concerned do we need to be today about this conflict boiling over into a regional war with Iran, with Hezbollah? Very concerned. I, you know, I've been talking to a lot of our uh, Arab partners in the region, the uh, Israeli ambassador, um, the administration. Um, I know that uh, the president visited and tried to get Israel to kind of slow down a little bit on their, you know, uh, march on the ground. I mean, they've taken out a lot of control, uh, you know, command and control operations by uh, strikes, surgical strikes. But when this ground operation starts, it's going to be like going house to house like what we did in Iraq, and it's very, very dangerous. <clears throat> and our special operators are training them, um, but we have to be very uh, careful how we carry or how they carry that out because we don't want the narrative from Hamas all of a sudden taking over in the Middle East and then rising um, with uh, Hezbollah um, turning its sights on, on Israel. That, that's the biggest fear is escalation. So we want to make sure that the situation currently does not escalate. That's why we're taking some time to get the civilians, the Palestinian civilians, to the south of Gaza and then get humanitarian aid to them as soon as possible through the Rafah Gate on the border of Egypt. And I've been working with the World Food Program on this to get to them the humanitarian assistance they need. Uh, we don't want to see a million people starving uh, in Gaza. And, and that would that would blow back on Israel. And that would be the worst message that we could send. We also have 2,000 Marines uh, in an expeditionary force in the Eastern Mediterranean as a show of strength and deterrence against Iran and uh, Hezbollah. 
as well. So uh, am I concerned? Uh, very concerned. I mean, it, to the point where I've been asked to start looking at an authorized use of military force that my committee is responsible for doing. Now, we don't want this, and I hope I, I never have to pass it out of my committee, but we have to be prepared for all uh, contingencies. So there's a real possibility we could see American troops on the ground in the Middle East because of this. That's not my uh, choice. I, I would not want to see that at all. I do want to give Israel everything it needs uh, to defend herself, uh, including, you know, they need uh, to replenish the Iron Dome. The, they need precision-guided weapons and more ammunition. Uh, and we can give them training and weapons. I prefer not to see uh, any of our uh, troops on the ground. However, if it escalates to out of control, that's always a contingency that we have to prepare for. We're playing in all of these different areas of the world, countering so many threats. Uh, what strain does that put on our country and our Congress during these these turbulent political times to try and support all of our allies and counter all of our adversaries right now? Well, you have uh, two, potentially three conflicts that could be taking place. We haven't really seen anything like this, I don't think, since my dad's war, World War II. Uh, largest invasion in Europe since World War II, biggest threat to the Pacific, and now an all-out war in the Middle East. And so um, this is not a time to be vacating the speaker's chair. Uh, it's a time for uh, governing. It's a time for adults in the room to, to stand up and, and start doing what the American people deserve and the work of, of the American people. And stop playing these partisan games. I, I, you know, I think a lot of us are getting tired of it, and we realize how dangerous it is right now. Um, and we need to get back to work. The congressman spoke at length about the battle to choose a House Speaker, including his response to rumors that he might be considered as a candidate. You can see more from my interview with Congressman McCall. We posted the complete conversation online. Just look for the link in this week's State of Texas story in the Texas Politics section of our website. Conserving the wildlife and wild places that make Texas so special is something that unites us all. A plan to spend more than a billion dollars on Texas parks is on the ballot. How the proposition is getting support from a famous Texan to help sway voters. Early voting for the November 7th election starts Monday, and Texans will be voting on 14 different proposed amendments to the state's constitution. One of the proposals aims to help Texas acquire more state parks, and it's getting bipartisan support and backing from a famous Texas voice. I'm Casey Musgraves, and I want to tell you about Prop 14. Grammy-winning country artist Casey Musgraves embraces nature's golden hour. This is our chance for a new golden era for state parks creation. It's why the Follow Your Arrow singer is asking Texas voters to follow her to the polls to vote yes on Prop 14. Conserving the wildlife and wild places that make Texas so special is something that unites us all. A yes vote would allow Texas to create a $1 billion trust fund to create more and expand upon existing state parks. Right now, Texas Parks and Wildlife leases land from the private sector to create some parks, but the fund would allow Texas to easily buy more land. Already our existing state parks are sometimes bursting at the seams and can't keep up with the demand. 
Advocates say the measure will be transformative as Texas's population booms and doesn't have enough green spaces to keep up with demand. Too many people have the experience in Texas where you have to plan many months ahead of time to book a campsite. We need to make it as easy as possible for people to get outside and experience the great outdoors. Lawmakers passed the proposal this session with overwhelming bipartisan support. We lose about a quarter of a million acres of uh, open space, farmland, green space in Texas annually. And so this $1 billion investment in our quality of life is absolutely crucial. And note the funding comes from this session's major budget surplus. It does not raise your taxes. It may even save you tax dollars in the long run. Early voting runs through November 3rd. And remember, the parks plan is just one of 14 amendments on the ballot. Texas voters will also decide the future of a property tax relief plan, as well as proposals to fund power plants and water projects in the state. Just scan this QR code on your screen to learn more about what's on your ballot. It'll point you to the story in the Texas politics section of our website, and we have a full list of propositions as well as links to the legislation that will become law if voters approve them. Thank you again for joining us for State of Texas. I'm Monica Madden. We'll be back next week to bring you an in-depth look at Texas politics.